Oh, it's the appreciator. That doesn't even sound melodic. I was going to try to fit it to, oh, what a beautiful morning. But that just, yeah, not well thought out as an introduction, but the appreciator is here. I'm Brett, a.k.a. PQ, and uh, you're here probably on the Overnight Scape Underground, I would guess, um, perusing the amazing uh, podcast that we house here. Um, to get started, Roger Waters had threatened to, and has followed through, to completely revisit and re-record the epic and classic Dark Side of the Moon album, which, that's a brief task, because this album is beloved and is one of the highest-selling albums in the history of music. It was on the Billboard Top 200 album charts for more consecutive weeks than anything else in history. The album continues to sell, and I would bet this release will uh, trigger yet another flow of sales of the original. It's just, I, I mean, I remember growing up myself and my uh, Uncle Jay turning me on to Pink Floyd. And I, had, I was just a dumb kid who listened to the radio. And maybe I had heard that song, Money, at some point. But I had no idea who Pink Floyd were. And they weren't exactly the sort of band that anybody even really knew what they looked like, unless you saw them in concert. They didn't really, especially in their post-Sid Barrett era, and we won't go into who Sid Barrett was, aside from he was a founding member whose uh, antics made it so he could no longer perform with the band, basically after their first album. Dark Side of the Moon was the album where Pink Floyd really became known and that iconic band that to this day, I believe, they are still considered head and tails above uh, most prog rock bands of that era. They're still remembered, and Roger Waters releasing this assuredly um, will trigger more attention and perhaps a new wave of fandom to a very deserving band. They've just survived for so many years. Their first album was way back in 1967. And Roger Moore Waters quit the band, God, it must be 20 years ago or more now, did his own solo albums, which, I mean, people buy them. I Even I myself have remained not so impressed with either Roger Waters' solo work after he left the band or the Pink Floyd albums after he left. There was something of the frisson of those musicians and Roger Waters' songwriting. I mean, he was the major songwriter, let that not be stated. And uh, Dave Gilmore, the guitarist who replaced Sid Barrett when Barrett left, pretty much became the key songwriter. And I don't know, he was... I, I can't complain about Dave Gilmore... But Dave Gilmore, even in comparison with Roger Waters' solo, meh. Uh, this, this is somebody who works better with a little bit more collaboration and control. So the other day, they uh, released Roger Waters' first track 
from this project, uh, his new version of the iconic Pink Floyd song, Money. And I was probably expecting it to be mediocre or worse, and I was surprised. I know it's probably not better or going to be as iconic as the original, but it's really intriguing what he did. He made it a little more dirge-like. He brought out a real darkness to the lyric, which is very appropriate because the song still, the lyrics resonate as, uh, you know, money being, it, it has its uses, but it can lead. And the love of money, of course, is the root of all evil. And not like pe- money is not the root of all evil, according to that, I believe, biblical quotation. It is the love of money. And that is different. I mean, money in and of itself, I suppose, is inert. But a person who loves money above everything else, that can get really dicey really quick. Um, the one review I watched of this compares his vocal, his gritty, dark vocal, to Tom Waits. But nah, nah, Tom Waits is Tom Waits, and I'm not getting that vibe and didn't. But it is a much darker read of the material. And instead of this solo, which is a saxophone solo in the original, there is this prolonged new poem added that is very dark. And it, like I say, I would say, yes, you should check this out. And it's, it's a very fine piece. Um, otherwise, I said I was going to look at some films and film directors. And uh, I watched a film just the other day. And uh, I watch films mostly with my European friends. Uh, we uh, download and share files and watch together so we can comment together. And, and that's nice. I mean, it's much better than just watching films in a vacuum. And that's probably why I haven't watched as many films until recently. But we watch a film called Audition. And uh, this is a Japanese 1999 horror film, which was directed by Takashi Miike. Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, Who I had never heard of. I'd never heard of the movie. And uh, it's really interesting as a horror film. Uh, It's about this widower who, some years after his wife dies... His son kind of comments that maybe he should find a wife. And uh, he works for a film company. So he and uh, one of the filmmakers there decide that, well, the best way to meet somebody new might be to hold auditions for a movie and look into the women who show up for interviews and auditions. And one of these women truly fascinates this character And uh, from there, what happens gets hallucinogenic, grim, and very dark. Um, It was quite shocking, in fact. Some of it is pretty graphic, but like Japanese films of that era, they are known for some pretty dark themes. And the acting, uh, I don't know any of these actors. 
Elhi Shalina, Ryo Ishibashi, Jun Kunimura. But uh, let's uh, take a look at what some of the comments uh, or what it says here on Wikipedia. Uh, it can be considered both feminist and misogynistic, which I could see depending on how you look at it, because the woman in the audition does, without spoiling it too much, take her own power on without, uh, well, in a, in a unique sort of way. And some might consider it grabbing her power and others might consider it uh, going over the top. So I could understand that. And according to Wikipedia, Rotten Tomatoes has the film rated 81%. That's, that's not bad. And Metacritic gives it 69 out of 100, which is, uh, I guess, what they call generally favorable reviews. Variety gave the film a positive review, calling it a truly shocking horror film, which even made, which made even more disturbing by its haunting beauty. Yeah, this guy has a real nice touch for cinematography and visuals, and it makes everything more powerful. This is not a cheapo gore horror film. There's a lot of art and really interesting stuff. And I am sort of interested in seeing more films by this director. Um, let's take a look at what else he has made. Um, he's still making films. In fact, some of these titles are just awesome. Uh, he has a film coming out this year called Wumberjack the Monster. Uh, he's done a bunch of um, films in a series, I guess, that is a heroine series, like Heroine Love Petrina, he Heroine Photo, Phantom Mirage, Heroine Majimasho Puresi, and he has directed a number of anime films. So th this is a guy who bears watching and I can heartily recommend. And uh, not long ago, Frank Edward Nora mentioned that he had gone to see a newly struck remastered print in a movie theater of 2001 A Space Odyssey, the Kubrick film that it, it's, it is an amazing, almost timeless, I mean, no, those things didn't happen in 2001, but the look at AI is very prescient. The idea of how humans evolved and perhaps were seeded mentally in some way by some outside force, a.k.a. the monolith, so to speak. Um, if you've never seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, even if it's just you know, watching a DVD or some other form at home. Uh, it does take a little patience, but I feel it's very rewarding despite a few challenges. Um, I saw it for the first time as a wee little kid when it first came out, which means I was six or seven years old, and it stuck with me. The imagery, like most Kubrick films, is so powerful, and Kubrick in general has done so many just incredible and important films. Uh, Dr. Strangelove, which, you know, Peter Sellers is just 
so good in that. A good case could be made that that is the best Peter Sellers film that ever was made or that he ever made. And I really recommend that. And especially, I mean, I can't imagine that there are people within the sound of my voice who have not seen Dr. Strangelove, but it's possible, especially uh, younger people. Uh, it used to be on New York television pretty regularly, so it was something I saw a number of times before I was even aware that this was some important and iconic film. You know, you were limited, as we often say, Frank and I, to only a few channels back in the 60s and 70s before cable TV was prevalent. So you put on the TV and looked at the TV guide, and, yep, there was a good movie, so you'd sit and watch it or watch it with friends. And it really is an interesting look at the Cold War era when the U.S. and Russia, the, everybody was afraid that they were just going to start shooting A-bombs at one another. And uh, what happens when uh, the fail-safes for all that might split? Um, Cooper also did, with uh, Peter Sellers, the uh, now less popular and less seen version of Lolita, the uh, famous book by Vladimir Nabokov about uh, an older man who falls in lust or love with an underage girl and kills her mother and runs away with her and what happens then. Uh, the Jeremy Irons film, which was made later, and I don't know, is probably, possibly closer to the book. In my I mind, I'm a big fan of the writing of Nabokov. And to me, Lolita, while a very fine novel, is one of his lesser works, but of course the spicy material makes it very popular with filmgoers. Uh, the, 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 Peter, the book itself is chaste. I mean, there are no pornographic or uh, titillating sequences in it. The uh, Peter Sellers Kubrick film is also not very titillating, whereas perhaps... Uh, at least more so than the others, the Jeremy Irons one uh, is a little um, more explicit, so to speak. Um, and the story matter, I guess, is still topical. That's still a question whether older people should be with younger, especially under the age of consent women. Uh, that just, I, I don't think will ever get done either accepting or rejecting that and that being a point of controversy. But Kubrick, almost all of his films, I'm about to watch Eyes Wide Shut again uh, because the first time I saw it, I really don't think I absorbed it all. Uh, he's also known for The Shining with Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall, which, again, I'm sure most people have seen it, Nowadays, there are probably outliers who have not seen it. Another director that I want to bring up is a man by the name of Peter Greenaway. And he's been making films on and off. I don't think he's done any features recently. But the ones I love are his earlier features. Films like Drowning by Numbers, 
uh, about wives who might or might not uh, put their husbands out of their misery. But the stylized filmic cinematography and camera work and the composition of Peter Greenaway's films is unique and so exceptional. He may be best known for Prospero's book, maybe the pillow book, uh, which uh, is kind of a theme on Japanese culture and uh, sexual mores. The Cook, the Thief, His Wife and Her Lover is the film that brought him to my attention at the time I worked in a video store, and that was like a must-see among the staff uh, about, well, uh, perhaps cannibalism, perhaps not, uh, but my favorite of all of his films is a film about two brothers and the women they love, and that all centers around a zoo, which is called Zoo, or a Z and two noughts, a play on the word zoo, Z-O-O, so to speak. And this film, the construction of it, it, it's just like this wonderful puzzle book. And it's really hard to talk about film for me without spoiling or, you know, I'm the sort of person who doesn't even like to watch coming attractions. But if you get your hands on these Peter Greenaway films, one, or if you've seen them, one, I'd like to know what you thought or think. And uh, I recommend that you check these out. Uh, these are things, absolutely, that the appreciator appreciates. Let's have a little public... Well, actually, I have been looking at... I used to use a lot of chiptune music in my uh, varied podcast projects. And I uh, went over to Free Music Archive and archive.org and fished around to see what is up more recently. Now, chiptune music is music made with the same tools that uh, are used to make video game music. And for me, the classic stuff is done with a Game Boy using that minimalistic approach of sounds and programming that one would use on a Game Boy. And of course, now video game music is composed in a much more elaborate fashion. But there are artists still doing this craft and, uh, well, here, let us hear uh, a track that I have acquisited. This is uh, an artist by, named Zane Little, and the title of this track is Insect Factory, thereby fulfilling the Creative Commons attribution license that it has been released under.
Yeah, it's it's a form of music that I don't see becoming like epically hit, but I really I like the feel of it. It's it's sort of soundtrack music in a way, but it's not quite. There's more whimsy and fun and uh, I don't know melodic content perhaps. Uh, it, 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 it's I like it. I, that that's probably what I should leave it at. Then the work that I suppose goes into it is a whole other form of composition. Although this kind of stuff I could see being just done with a keyboard and a MIDI outfit, which, hey, however you do it, if you can get results like this and a sound like that, I mean, it really is a rich sound and I guess much more modern than, say, the chip tune that was done uh, in the earlier days with basically generated with an actual hacked Game Boy unit or Game Boy Advance. I don't think these are done on consoles anymore. Just using the same equipment and the same sensibility that's taken into composing music for games. And I don't know how much... I don't play enough games to understand all that. We do have hosts on the Onsug who do, I, I think, Rubinerd, uh, maybe Chad Bowers would have a better handle on that sort of thing in that pop culture. I mean, I can barely play video games. I just recently tried playing XCOM 2 again, and I just, I don't know whether there's something in my brain that doesn't understand video game strategy or playing I cannot not die or like not fulfill a lot of the missions uh, in this game, which is a turn-based type of game because I real-time action, I'm just too slow anymore. I'm an old man. And I just, I suppose if I had somebody at hand who played the games and I got to see, I think I learned best from watching and it like firsthand one-to-one teaching as opposed to watching a tutorial online or worse reading or experiencing a tutorial built into the game. I, I, there's something obviously that I am not doing or missing because I'm sure there are seven year olds who pick up a game like XCOM 2 and in no time have mastered it and are finishing it. And I can't, survive for almost any length of time playing this game uh before i get too far off a of field i do want to play one more track from zane little this one is called dizzy racing
yeah, that's that's what I'm talking about. The excitement of chip tune music that really, I I think I like that better than even the other one. And it's catchy, it moves, and it has that sort of retro gamey sound and feel that I don't know. I, I it, it's an active sort of music. Uh, it's not like symphonic, and you're going to sit back it, and. It's got this neat mathy feel of uh, calculations and sound, uh, and it's it's modern and retro at the same time in my head. It's the good stuff, and uh, I heartily recommend this uh, performer. And I'm sure if you search around, you can find more stuff by Zane Little. And before we part company. Um, there's a series that Vice has been doing that you can usually catch also on YouTube called Dark Side of the Ring, which feeds into my whole fascination with the history and personalities of professional wrestling. The newest one out um, covers a wrestler named Abdullah the Butcher, who is, if you saw him, you would be terrified. He is a stout huge man, probably over 300 pounds, and he is known as a man who has bled and caused more other wrestlers to bleed in the history of the sport. He uses a fork on his opponents, and yeah, uh, he has been in a bunch of controversies over the year, and if you just look at the man, his entire forehead is just he, he shaves his head, and his head is one big mass of scar tissue. Uh, just, if that sort of thing fascinates you, you should definitely uh, look into him. And some of his matches are online, and they are. I mean, this is not um, like some wrestlers do all kinds of flips and show athletic skill and actual uh, talents and techniques used by actual wrestlers, you know, people like uh, gold medal Olympic winner Kurt Angle, who moved on to professional wrestling and had his, had a very long, I think he may be retired now, but he had a rather long and successful career using those moves and the innovations he used working with professional wrestlers. But uh, Dark Side of the Ring, Abdullah the Butcher, if that sounds of interest to you, uh, you'll probably enjoy the time spent absorbing that. And uh, our time is uh, run short once again. I appreciate you listening, and uh, I would appreciate if altogether we could set the controls for the heart of the fun till next we meet.